Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Video game lore can be, well, just awful. The problem is video game creators are prone to making two erroneous assumptions about what constitutes a deep narrative. The first is that volume equals depth. In the classic tradition of epic science fiction and fantasy literature, studios will craft thousands of pages of backstory, often involving many hundreds of characters and vast intergalactic wars. Sometimes it seems as though, early in a narrative meeting, one writer will say to another, okay, let's set this in the middle of a war that's been running for a hundred years. And their colleague replies, no, wait, how about a thousand years? And then everyone agrees this is exponentially deeper. It isn't. It's just an extra knot on the end of a conflict that, without context, pathos, or human tragedy, is ultimately meaningless. That was, uh, those were the words of Keith Stewart in a piece titled, Why is Video Game Lore So Awful? I'm Danielle Riendo, and this is Waypoint Radio, episode 186. Joining me today are Natalie Watson. Hi, hi. Rob Zachney. Hello, hello. And special guest, Kato. Hey, Special guest today, uh, of course, Kato, yep. because we're talking about lore, and today is a very special day. It's it's September fourteenth, uh, yep. and today there is a new raid in Destiny Two. Very we figured excited! It was yeah, I I think you're very excited, and also uh, since Destiny has always been a very lore heavy game, and there's this new content, and we all want to talk about lore. That would be a good little uh, place for us to hang our little uh, narrative uh, hats on today. So. Kato, why don't you get us started a little bit on, first of all, this new raid and, and how Destiny sort of uses raids now, it seems, to sort of add lore to its grand and deep and rich universe. Yeah, so the since the beginning, actually, since Destiny 1, raids were always very... They weren't tied to any of the main narratives, usually. Um, there was uh, one big exception to that which is a standout which was the taken king which uh, if you don't know was like the second dlc the the second year of dlc for destiny that like everyone said like made the game so much better it was like the high point of destiny one um and that raid did lead directly from like the end of the campaign into into the story that the raid told but other than that like most of the raids are kind of these separate siloed off things that add this these bits of world building and stuff also like a lot of the lore in destiny was delivered at least in the first game through the grimoire system mm. which was a bunch of, of this digital cards that you could only access on a website outside of the game which was <laughs> not great um i personally did enjoy reading them like when i was not playing the game like i would read up 
as I was like on the subway or whatever. But it sucks that you would see this little pop up and be like, there's new lore. Go to Bungie.net to and log in with your PSN account and make a new Bungie account in order to read this lore that you supposedly unlocked in the game. And so a lot of people didn't actually engage with that. And what's really interesting to me now is that this current expansion that just came out for Destiny 2 has circled back around on a lot of lore in Destiny 1 that I feel like not a lot of people saw. Personally, like the thing that's interesting to me is, is wondering like whether or not anyone who hasn't seen that lore is going to get any sort of impact out of the campaign. It's kind of weird to see all these like threads that I've been reading about and like usually like in every other expansion and release for Destiny since the beginning, they've never brought the lore into the game proper. It's always been like, here's some stuff that happened way long ago, or here's some stuff that like is like way out in the margins and like not really connected. Well, and the lore was always like really impressionistic. This is this is the other thing. Yeah. Is the grimoire lore was totally really different from Destiny. Absolutely. I always thought like, um, so I started playing Destiny two again. Which boy, coming back to that after a year off sure is disorienting. <laughs> right. Like, I'm the game director. I'm like I. What is happening? <laughs> and then, and then the game, the game wouldn't let me play the expansion. It's like you're, I'm sorry, you're, sir, you're a little, you're a little underleveled for, wow. for this expansion. No. Like I felt like I was applying for a fucking apartment. Yeah, um, credit's not good enough, Rob. Too yeah. real. Could your, I'm sorry, does your, does your, do your mom and dad have accounts with like, Destiny yeah. that we yeah. could verify? Like, could they backstop you on that? Yeah. Uh, could, could you run this with your parents? No. Uh, but the thing that I, I'm not sure is compatible with sort of the direction that lore is going in Destiny. And I'm curious what you think of this Kato is like, so it does sort of seem like they're trying to at least, uh, merge a little bit, the fiction of the game as you play it. And then the backstory, the, 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 the lore and world building that used to exist in the grimoire. And they're trying to unite those a little bit. The problem is, in the process of doing that, they don't seem to be changing the tone of Destiny. It's more like everything that was cool and ambiguous in the grimoire, you're getting the just-the-facts version of that. So it becomes like right. all the tone is sort of bleached out of it. And it goes into Destiny voice, which is all very triumphalist and straightforward and sassy. Um, you know, we're just a bunch of cool wizards. You know, boy, we sure did destroy those those cows, didn't we? Up top. <laughs> and, like, you're not Yikes. going to get the equivalent of um, this one card I've been thinking a lot about lately. Um, this character, Varix, who I think is a turncoat uh, member of, like, the House of Wolves? Well, I, um, he was part of the House of Judgment, which is his own house, but he's the last surviving member. And they uh, associated with themselves with non-fallen, which was the weird thing about them. But there's this card where he is like, basically, he's become a collaborator with the enemy of his people. And he's like running a prison slash like fight club, like death arena. It's, it's, a, for... yeah, it's a gladiatorial, yep, arena for okay. the Woken. And it's not, and there's fallen in there. There are fallen, yeah. there are people of his, yeah. But there's this card where he's sort of thinking about, like, he's ushering them to the gladiatorial arena for another day of slaughter. And he's like, is this... He, he like, it's just him sort of going through his inner monologue. Like, is he a traitor? How does he feel about this? And the card leaves that unresolved. 
I'm not sure that's compatible with the way Destiny tells its story. That kind of amb- ambiguity, ambivalence. Yeah, no. I mean, I don't... <sighs> At least for the first half of the this new campaign, it really... The tone and... That, doesn't it doesn't line up right um it it's only actually like near the very end of what is the campaign and more again they like seeded this in like surrounding the raid and like in the end game but like at the end of the campaign um the tone shifts and it becomes it it, it kind of tries to line align itself more with the tone of the lore because kate is gone right so you don't have that he was like the cheesiest character in <laughs> Destiny always. He was the one always <laughs> cracking jokes. And um I feel like it's uh, this, this almost meta narrative of like we're killing off our comic comedic relief. Like we're serious now. Like we know that y'all liked the grimoire. Here's that shit like in the game. Yeah, it but yeah, like normally up up until now, like that hasn't been the case. Every every narrative in Destiny has been like let's go kill all the aliens you don't really care why right like it's fine um and then all the backstories like filling in like what any of these npcs are actually thinking like things that you barely get in any sort of in cutscenes or anything like that like it was it was two separate worlds and i'm interested to see where they go forward with this because their plan right now their content plan is to not release any more story content there won't be any more missions in the next three DLCs. It's just going to be activities, new raids. And, like, um, it feels like there's just going to be leaning more and more on the lore, which they, to be fair, they put back into the game. Fine, there's a grimoire-like system in Destiny 2 now, but it, you can read it in the game and also off, on, offline. Where does it live? I'm curious because I was I was going through Destiny yesterday and like I saw the Triumph system and, yeah. and all that stuff, but I didn't. None of mine was filled in yet. I'm curious. Like, so is that where the is that yes. the new grimoire? Yeah, yeah, it's in the Triumphs. So Triumphs in general is just like small little like in-game achievements or whatever, and one of them is lore, um, and you get that uh, fed to you in a couple different ways. One of them is there's collectibles that you pick them up and you get a new lore card. And the other way is just like by going through the campaign, you'll get like extra lore. And like, that's basically that lore that you get during the campaign for finishing certain campaign missions is, is kind of that old style of destiny lore where you're getting a lot of like side stories and like introspection that isn't in the main campaign. And then as you reach the end game, it's just like, okay, now that we're done with that, you're not getting, um, you're not getting any more of this destiny narrative story. You're just getting lore and like the the mechanics of like the 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 end game zone is all around just finding that lore in the world. And it's also like yeah, it's like set up with a lot of um destiny 1 lore that people don't know probably, which is people it's don't great know their to history. It's it's like yeah, it's great to me like because I know like I really, like, there's this one turn of phrase that if you were really into Destiny 1 lore, you would recognize it's uh, O blank mine. So if you're reading a lore card, it would say O reader mine. Or if you're wearing a piece of armor, it would say O bearer mine. And that is, there's these dragons, these, like, mythical, like, ancient dragons that apparently were all killed. They were all killed off, like, 
they Aww. they would grant wishes, but it was like a monkey paw situation. It was never Homer, when you... <laughs> right on my back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and um, the these dragons were like, it was a really cool piece of lore. That was like, you never expected them to touch it in the main game. It was like, it's just like neat bits of flavor on pieces of armor and in the grimoire, and like everything in. Uh, the campaign, and I don't know about the raid yet, but everything's been pointing to, like, actually, we're going to meet one of these dragons in the game. Um, and as a longtime player of Destiny, that's, like, very exciting. Like, okay, cool, we'll see what they, like, what they actually look like or, like, whether or not, like, I'm interested in what they're going to do with that interaction, but I don't trust them to pull it off well. Because what, what was interesting about those dragons in the lore is that they're, like, these weird tricksters that, like, you know, are... <laughs> luring people into like weird deals with them but i mean we'll have i'm if you're listening to this i'm probably in the raid right now and like learning about whether or not they like pull this off because (laughs) raids are have historically been very puzzle heavy so i could see a way where like one of these uh they're called ahamkara being the boss can fit into the, the mechanics of like having a lot of puzzles in like a thing but like it's gonna be a difficult. I don't know that they're. I don't know that that's where they're going, or if that's gonna be how they pull that off. Um. One of the uh, biggest questions. Thank you, Kato, uh, for making a lot of this make sense <laughs> to me. Because I um, honestly, what I know about Destiny comes from you know playing very little of the first game, and then playing right. you know the first couple hours of the second game, but hearing things from people about the grimoire and that there are amazing side stories and cool bits and and pieces all kind of all over the place but somebody who doesn't play destiny i'm just sort of like is this like a metal gear solid situation where you just you need to be all in or none of it makes sense you know it it uh, so, kind of yeah. it kind of is well the sure. the thing is that what bungie really wants to do is to have its cake and eat it too right like they want the people who are going to be really fucking invested to read all the lore and be invested, but they also are trying to keep the campaign separate enough that if somebody picks it up, like, it's not going to matter to them. Like, it'll be a fun whatever adventure through the, like, cosmos. (laughs) Yeah. It's such a weird fucking thing because, like, (laughs) Destiny on some level is always going to be the game that was in those initial ads, those those full motion video ads with, like, where it's like... Hey, bros. <laughs> What's what up? What are we doing today? We're just hanging out on the moon like AC. No, we're going to Venus. To yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Fucking, they got and, Led Zeppelin for the second one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and like, I mean, it's that like to a degree, it's always going to be a game where as you're playing it, you half expect a major character to show up with like a cube of natty ice or something <laughs> like that and, and be like, hey, guys, I brought, I brought party supplies oh. and... It's always going to be that game to an extent, but then it's also like it's that game, but also like in the backdrop, it's like, ooh, what's this like beautiful, mysterious, mournful like dreamscape that I'm inhabiting, and and then in the lore, it's trying to do that thing where it's like, actually, there's some hard sci-fi going on in here, and <laughs> some like, uh, and and we're also trying our hand at like poetry and microfiction. Yeah, uh, I think if you like. Don't worry, like, this is between us. Like, don't tell, don't, don't tell, tell the bros over, over there. there. Gonna, yeah. yeah, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> and and it, it is su- it's such a weird thing to me. And I, I, yeah. I, I can't work out if it's brilliant or, or just <laughs> I, ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, it feels a little bit just like, 
part of AAA game development, right? Like, at a certain point, you're going to lose a certain amount of, like, the demographic if you go too serious into the lore or something. But that's why this last expansion is interesting to me, because they they are doing that now. Like, they're mm-hmm. starting to go deep into the lore. They're starting to just be like, all right, like... All of that, like partying's out of the way now. Let's get serious. We're talking. We're talking about mi- mi- mythical witch witch dragons that can change. You know, make dimensions of their own, and like we're in it now. But it uh, seems so like mitigated yeah. enough that you aren't like it's like you you have to seek it. Like you have to yeah pay. So if the brosif. Right. Like, I don't know. Brosives, I don't, I don't know. Maybe not all brosives. I don't know. Like lore, whatever. But anyway, if the typical player who doesn't care about lore, whatever they may be colloquially named, um, <laughs> Bros. Like, does bro. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it seems like that can be missed, or at least, like, not paid attention to in a way that, like, feels like oh i should be paying attention to this for like significance or for like finesse of playing the game um no it's definitely like that's why it's 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 weird to it's it's why i'm interested in in seeing what's next because this ends on such a lore heavy and like on just such a like tonal shift for the series Mm -hmm. that so part of the thing with destiny 2 was that there was a big like fan outlash on like a lot of the systems in the game at the beginning and the this expansion has been a lot of like correcting back to what the players the community quote-unquote really mostly just the reddit the subreddit (laughs) because they're the loudest um (laughs) Uh, want in the game and I think part of that is also like a that tonal shift and it seems like they've given up on that wider demographic because they know that at this point maybe it's too late to pick up on like all of the bros at this point it's like if the bros haven't gone on to Destiny 2 they're not going to now yeah. and so like we're we're free to like just dive in for the rest of the however long this game will last before Destiny 3 happens I have a theory that Destiny was a cleverly disguised bro otaku assembly line <laughs> where it's like it came in and it was like yo let's just fuck up some bugs with machine guns hell yeah cool fist Woo. bump and then like acdc plays for a little while and then like someone slides a card across you after a mission and is like but what if those robots are dreamers like you <laughs> and like it's like huh well, anyway, I'll have to kill some more robots. Think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it makes and then, like, think. you keep getting these little snippets, and eventually it's like, oh, wait, this is all connected. What right. if the Traveler's role in this universe is more ambiguous than initially I thought? And then slowly, it's like, sorry, guys, can't go out tonight. Got to read the Grimoire Library. <laughs> and I love it. So you got your natty where- ice in your hand. Drink. You got your laptop open. Yeah, but you're drinking it now out of like a like a pint glass right, or you something. It out. You're, you're sort of like, yeah. That is and like the first image. Yeah. <laughs> then like now you're now you're outside the frat house, like in the lawn chair, you know, right. sort of nursing the natty ice. Yeah. And and being just like Just enjoying it. Just savoring, really. Just, just just taking your time with it. Just drink deeply of that natty ice. And maybe even contemplating like maybe I should, you know. Think about getting into Red Dog, but 
But at this point, we are now like far enough along into Destiny, and they've been sort of spoon feeding people this universe. And like Destiny is a very silly game. Like if you play it for a long time, you're go- because we are because we're people because we like narratives and stories and puzzling out the mysteries and unexplained shit we see around us. I kind of wonder, like, at a certain point, all those people that Destiny brought in through the door of, like, hey, it's a good-looking game about space wizards rocking automatic weapons. All those people now, like, after a number of years of having this shit worked on them, are all like, yeah, but I wonder what is up with the Reef. And what, you know, what what is the relationship between the Awakened and the Fallen? Makes you think. And, like, maybe they don't need to do that anymore. And maybe that's why they killed Cade. Maybe Cade's, like, the guy who couldn't grow up. And everyone's yeah. like, sorry, man, like, we're here to study. And Kay, like, <laughs> Kay died in a game of Flippy Cup. <laughs> the bro who couldn't make him think. <laughs> R.I.P. Wouldn't think. Right, sorry, there's Kay. a lot of noise yeah. on our end. If you're hearing this, somebody right. is moving an elephant across yeah. the hall. So just. It's part of the lore. It's part, part of the lore of, part of the, the deep lore. Yeah, hate it. Of Lobby yep. One. Deep deep lore of Lobby One. They're replacing so the bear a... with an elephant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't be surprised, to be honest with you. Um so on the on the topic of sort of pleasing everybody or trying to, pleasing the bros and pleasing the uh, otakus and everyone in between. Uh I came across when I was sort of looking uh, up material for this uh, particular episode. A really good talk from uh, Jennifer Brandis Hepler. Uh, she of uh, she wrote uh, she was a writer at Bioware for a long time. Uh, wrote, was a writer on Dragon Age games for quite a while and Woo! many many other things. But uh, yeah, and I'm sure we'll get to Dragon Age. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> oh, at gamer, some point, logged on. <laughs> at some point, yeah, exactly. Uh, but she did a talk at GDC a couple years ago called The Exposition Burden. Now, this was specifically about exposition, but it has a lot to do with what we're talking about. And it also explains, I think, a lot of uh, why it's so difficult to do lore in AAA games, or just honestly, probably in any team setting at all. So I'll, uh, I'll just read a little bit from her talk here. Uh, so she's talking, and of course she's using slides, so I'll try to sort of uh, illustrate this using my words here as much as I can. But uh, she certainly had some uh, some cool visual aids to help this, so I, it won't be as good as when she did it, but I'll give it a shot. Uh, so she says, the purpose of game dialogue is to move the player forward. So why does so much game dialogue look like this? And then there's a slide that shows this sort of elderly RPG NPC looking guy, you know, the old wizened man. And he goes, let me tell you about our people. Our histories begin in the age of stone. And then she says, end up with a player like this. And then, of course, there's a slide of a woman asleep on the keyboard. And then she goes into why this comes to be. Well, a lot of times it's because the dialogue starts out like this. We must defend against the evil empire. And then after a marketing meeting, it turns into because they are trying to take over the world by turning dragons into dirty bombs. And then, when the lead designer needs to show off the deep, explorable world, you have to add this. The Empire hates us because back in the age of old, we once went to war over the dragon mines. And then when QA realizes the week before cert that the whole area is empty and the level designers need to throw in some mobs, you you also have to work this in. Oh, and while you're defeating the evil Empire, collect 20 orc skulls, okay? So, (laughs) clearly, there's a a whole world of uh, collaboration that goes into making this all work. And of course, I think it, it always needs to be said that AAA game development and really any game development on any level is a hell of uh, many, many needs and many, many different types of skill sets and many, many different types of motivations. And all of this needs to work together nicely. So I think that's something of an explanation for why lore can be a 
fucking mess and disaster in a lot of games. And one yeah. other question that I definitely want to pose to everyone here uh, is, or, or not even a question, but a framing. So it sounds like Destiny is all of the above here. There's just so much of it, and it, it kind of hits on different notes in so many different ways, and now it's being implemented in so many different ways. But what is the difference between, and this is not an easy uh, thing to answer, that's why I want it to be just sort of a framing for the rest of a conversation, but what is the difference between lore that actually just puts you to sleep or makes you roll your eyes or makes you sort of laugh at it and not in the good way, and lore that actually really intrigues you and brings you into the world and makes you interested and excited to explore it more? Uh, and obviously there are examples on either side of this, uh, but Natalie, I definitely wanted to talk to you a little bit about your experiences with Hollow Knight, and I think you had some things to say about Dragon Age as well, and I'm yes. going to throw Bloodborne into the mix, if you Ooh, want. If yeah, you feel Bloodborne like it. is a good one, and I had not prepared <laughs> for it, but it is definitely oh, okay. relevant. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say that Bloodborne took me... I mean, maybe it's the framing of how I started playing Bloodborne where it really did feel like, okay, this playthrough is about beating this game, like in like a very like mechanical, physical sense. Like I want to overcome the challenges that are presented at me and I want to be good and get good and beat this game. (laughs) Um, So a lot of the time which is unlike me when I came across lore, I feel like I wasn't retaining it as much as uh, I do in other games, Um, only because I think I was just so focused on being like, okay, but I need fucking blood vials right now. I can't be reading (laughs) some shit about some rags. Like, I need to go get more blood vials. So, (laughs) but the lore of, Bloodborne did get really interesting right where we dropped off, uh, which, you know, I don't know if we're going to pick that game back up again in-house. Unfortunately, my save is on Austin's account, so even (laughs) if I wanted to keep playing, I could not. So I'd have to start from the beginning, which is a terrifying idea. I really don't want to fucking do that over again. No, I don't you know if I would. I think reborn. I got really yeah. lucky sometimes. Blood reborn. Oh, yeah, I'm. I can't do it. Um, but yeah, so I. I don't know. On my second playthrough, I think I would pay a lot more attention to the lore. But the lore is just so. It is referenced, but it's referenced in, in places where you really, really have to look, and you're not challenged much on your. Or at least not directly, which is kind of hard for being for coming at the game in the way that I was, like coming at it from like this, like, oh, I want to beat this game. I wasn't being challenged on my knowledge of the lore as much as I maybe wanted to, at least as directly as I would have liked for it to stay fresh in my head. Um, But definitely there were moments where like something would happen and I'd be like, Oh, so that's what's going on. (laughs) So there was a little bit of that. But I wish that Bloodborne had what Dragon Age Inquisition has, which also Destiny seemed... I've never played Destiny. I've only played Gambit mode. Hashtag Joyous Gamer forever. (laughs) Um, Which is the Codex in Dragon Age. Um, And the Codex was something that... 
Dragon Age Inquisition was one of the first um, open world games that like lore heavy type games that I had really played and gotten into. And Dragon Age Inquisition is like one of my favorite games of all time. And I think that it has a lot to do with the my ability to like be able to immediately go and reference something that was happening in the world and like cross-reference it with my um, codex. And what's interesting yeah. about the codex too, which I didn't realize until I was looking at the Wikia for Dragon Age, is that the codex is also filled out based on who you play as. Hmm. So if you play as a um, Dalish, like a the Dalish are the the elves of the of um, what's it called Thetis. Um, if you play as a as a Dalish elf, any sort of entries about elves in your uh, codex will be written by other elves. Whereas other w- wardens, if you play as a different race, it will be written by humans, which is like very interesting, um, especially because so much of elven culture in that game has been recovered and have to be reinterpreted ba- on lost artifacts or like artifacts that aren't like their current, their their original function is not known. So it's like just kind of guesswork at what it could be which has which i mean if you play dragon age inquisition i won't spoil it i don't know it's been out for like (laughs) three years or four four years years. yeah four years (laughs) but that that is not like a lot of the interpretations of of you know ancient dalish elves is uh wrong so um that i think was like really crucial for me because whenever i entered a space whenever i encountered people whenever i found you know a uh a a new animal that seemed kind of odd or whatever i could immediately go in within the game into my codex and reference it which was really cool um contrast that with hollow knight which doesn't have any sort of like journal or codex or you know scrapbook to keep all of your sort of lore bits in um i feel like hollow knight was the perfect amount of lore that like di- like it was just so digestible in a way that if i m- if i miss something in the world or if i wanted to piece things together i didn't feel bad about going outside into like the internet to like read about lore stuff because it wasn't like a lot of those things were so transient. Like there were conversations that would be lost and think and, and um, you know, sometimes they were uh, uh, cut scenes that, you know, you can't go back to and things like that, but they, they weren't kept in, or there were a lot of them were like artifacts that you'd find that, that the shopkeeper would, would read, you know, I'll tell you a little bit about them. Um, but I didn't feel as bad going outside of the game to understand the lore because these objects were so um, transient in in the sense yeah. that I couldn't really hold on to them for very long. And a lot of the time I don't want to go out of the game to 
read things about the game because I feel like I'm getting sort of someone else's understanding of it or like I'm reading someone else's writing and it's not the game's writing. It's not people Mm. in – like I like to think about it as in the codex way, you know, people in this game's history – um, characters in this game's history are writing, are contributing to this world, to this lore building. I love that. I love the idea that there's contributions um, all contained within the world itself. Um, but for Hollow Knight, I don't know. I don't know why. I, I guess. Does it have something to do with like how it supports that theme? I'm, I've only played a little Hollow Knight, but it always seemed mm-hmm. like a very sort of wistful and melancholy and and you know you're saying the idea of sort of transience does it just kind of work with that theme well or is it more or is it maybe something entirely yeah i think it does and i think there is you know some something that there is something to melancholia where you know some things just like float right by you while you're in that kind of state um and things that are significant, like things that are like important events or or uh, things that people are telling you just kind of float right by and you don't really get to grab onto them because you're, I don't know, you're fucking sad. Like, I don't know, like you're really <laughs> sad. <laughs> um, yeah. But so I think it does work. And I think that um, there like everyone is so kind of disconnected from each other in Hollow Knight. Like all the sort of little sections and like different little uh, uh, communities in the game are very disconnected from each other. And there's not a lot of communication between them at all because the only people that are going in between them are like adventurers um, who are like looking for, you know, the Hollow Knight whatever, like, the treasure is or... And, what and the, dying, probably. And dying, yeah, and dying a lot. And then, um, but there's no, unless you're traveling by foot, there's no way to traverse through the world because the ho- the the uh, person you play as um, is the only one who has the ability to use the stagways, which are, like, kind of, like, the main mode of fast travel through the game, and the trams, which uh, let you go... Th- past like a certain level um go across a certain like level of the of the world so it makes sense that you know nobody's really writing you know nobody's collecting you are the only one that gets the exposure to everything so you're the only one that gets to collect this and you're busy trying to save the world you're not trying to write everything down. So I guess it does make sense. Even though I would love for there to be like a journal or something in that game, it does make sense that, you know, this little man's, I don't know what to call him, but I love him so much. Bunny, bug. bunny bug. Yeah, little bug. <laughs> he is his, uh, I don't want to spoil it. Okay, I'm not going to spoil it. <laughs> um, but I will say it's, that's not his main focus. You know, he's not here to, his the only reason why he's exploring the world is to figure out how to fix it um and or get to the people that can help him fix it and it's not about you know uh the the communities and the like relationships you have along the way are all a lot of them are completely 
like the relationships you develop are optional. So unless you're as the player looking for that, um, you can completely miss it. So it makes sense that the character that's not embedded in the game itself that you are the sort of like lore keeper or whatever. Rob, you got something there. No, I'm just I'm thinking about. For me, whether there's the distinction worth getting into between uh, – there's a few things there, actually. Like, one is – I was thinking this morning about the bio, the Bioware model, which is, like, a lot mm-hmm. of their games literally do have, like you were saying, Natalie, that in-game resource. Like, the, there's an encyclopedia approach within the game where it's, like, um, okay, here is where important facts and information and context about the world are stored. Um, Mass Effect – uh, did this where you could like literally go into an exhaustive encyclopedia and have a narrator be like the Mass Effect engine was invented and in, and like that was how that game rolled. Yeah, sorry, but, our race. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. But I was also thinking like this morning how little an impression most of that stuff made on me. I don't remember jack about the Mass Effect universe from that encyclopedia. No, nope. what I remember. Jack? I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, go ahead. Uh, what I what what I do remember though is like oh that's right. The humans were the enemies of like the Turians at first because that's when Ashley's like grandfather or father like disgraced himself by surrendering in that battle. Like and it's like oh like that like created like relatable stakes for the internal history of this universe. This was a thing that informed people's experience of the world moving forward. Um, I don't remember a ton about like how did the whole Rachni, um, oh hell, uh, the Rex people, uh, the the what is the name of that, that race? Krogans. Yes, <laughs> I was like Krogers. That's not right. That's a store. <laughs> uh, but I couldn't remember like the details of that. But what I do remember is uh, Morden trying to explain to you, like, trying to justify, he's like, no, 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 the genophage isn't a genocide. Here's the, ele- here's the elegance of the solution that we came up with. And it's, like, totally, like, mad scientist stuff in, in a lot of ways, and it's a gross analogy for a, a lot of real-world things, which is why I don't think that is necessarily the most thought-through plot line. But, again, it is a thing that is carried for, like, that is an event, that is history that has informed and marked all the characters it touches right like rex is an expression of this historical trauma that's been inflicted by these sort of paternalistic powers morden is basically a brilliant scientist who willingly became sort of a mengala like figure and is spending the rest of his life trying to figure out like what that means and whether he can be redeemed from that and that is like all that stuff exists it is informed by like the history as recorded in the lore but the way it is portrayed in the game and the way i think it makes a successful impression is all of that stuff is utilized to get at things about the characters to get at things yeah. about the conflict the personal conflicts you're dealing with today and i think that's a lot of lore i think gets tripped up into being like history and backstory for a universe yeah. but like that's not how we experience the world yeah it's... that's go on sorry I... uh, go ahead uh well i was just gonna say i think that 
you know, thinking, I think if I haven't, if I hadn't re- uh, written like two or three essays on Dragon Age Inquisition during my time <laughs> at NYU, wow. I wouldn't be able to recall a lot of what's in the codex because so much of what I went into was like that that elf uh, uh what I was fascinated mm-hmm. by was that like that elf like reclamation of culture um but when I think about like the moments that like um the moments that revealed those things or the the thing the moments that stayed in my head about that it is like the interactions between Solas and you know the 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 inquisitor yeah um and that that is always what's going to stick in my head and i think you're so right rob about like history is history but history does inform who we you know who these characters come to be and like what their what their you know burdens are what their um what their interpretations of the world may be and that is so much more memorable or like that sticks so much more in your head as a player, or at least for me, I think, and I guess for you too, Rob, um, then, you know, I don't remember one fucking sonnet from (laughs) Dragon Age Inquisition. I'm sorry. There were a lots, and I don't remember a single one because why? But I appreciate it. But also, (laughs) I don't know. That's uh... (laughs) a... That's part of why I really enjoy the way that the Destiny Grimoire was delivered, is that it was never that encyclopedic, like, this is what happened here, here, and here. It's like, these are these stories, like, and they're completely separated. Like, you can string them together if you want, but it's more like, this is a conversation between two people about, like, how Vex simulation might work. Like, we don't know. It's also, it's not, it's never like, this is like some sort of like encyclopedic truth that has been discovered in the world. It's always like, here's these stories from the past Mm. that inform the world that way. Like I think lore delivered through um, that form of narrative rather than like the codex, like in like year whatever of, you know, in Mass Effect. I don't remember any of the codex stuff from Mass Effect. Like I remember the story that happened in the actual game. Yeah. And similarly, I I barely remember what happened in the actual game of Destiny, but I remember a lot of the grimoire <laughs> and like I can tell you all about the sword logic and how the hive re- resurrect themselves because that those lore cards were really well written and really interesting and not just like here's this information. It's like here's a story mm. that you can glean information from. It's kind of cool how it all seems to be like, all right, well, the way the human brain works is kind of piecemeal, right? Or we like things to be piecemeal in a lot of ways, and we enjoy, or at least a certain type of player. I don't want to generalize to, like, every single human being who plays a game. But for myself, and I think for many people, it's more enjoyable and more, like, pleasurable to kind of put the clues together and kind of make the little timeline in your head than it is necessarily to have it, like, there it is, folks. Uh, And not that, you know, having the encyclopedic thing is a bad thing. It might be nice to sort of have a reference to go back to or, uh, you know, the the common thing of like, I haven't played this game in two years. I don't remember shit. Yeah. Okay, right, right. A, B and C. Okay, here we are. Here we go. That could be a helpful resource, but not, you know, necessarily the thing or the goal that you want to put together, basically. One game that does this really well. Sorry, Rob. I'll, no, no, I'll, no, go for it. I just want to shout this out super quick and then definitely go back to you. One game that does this so well uh, is Life is Strange, and especially uh, the Before the Storm game, which, again, uh, I know there's complications around. Every time we talk about this game, we're always going to you know, mention that there were some labor issues in that game and want to be clear. 
not condoning that. But uh, what I do want to shout out is the fact that the sort of diary in that game was incredible and funny and had like jokes and awesome other things that sort of, uh, you know, served as something of a plot summary or something of a, okay, events A, B, and C happen. These relationships are important. Uh, you know, it's a very story-based game about a teenage girl and it was like flipping through her, her scrapbook or her diary and there's stickers and there's drawings and then there's her kind of going through the events of the game. There was one really memorable and adorable and I thought hilarious joke about, uh, you know, so it's, um, Chloe and she's like writing to Max, sort of like the main character of the first game. And she writes about, um, I think it was like the way she phrased it was like, I rubbed one out to Pris, as in the like sexy robot from Blade Runner, uh, <laughs> the other night. It's like the way she phrased it, and I, I, I don't want to like mangle it, but it was just a very funny, like little weird joke that's very like, oh, she's so gay, and this is really <laughs> funny, and, like, just cute and funny, and that's that was just a thing in the diary, you know? That wasn't like, oh, this was, we made a big deal about this joke that we wanted to really deliver on in in a cinematic or something. It's like, no, that's just, like, a really funny little bit of lore that tells you so much about this, like, nerdy girl who's kind of finding herself and, like, finding her sexuality, and, like, yeah, of course she did. Of course she thought Pris was hot, all right? Yeah, that's good. That's really, really good, right? So I think that game does that super, super well in that context of having, like, a diary or a, you know, the pause screen actually has a really awesome function that, that helps you understand the story and the characters. So, Rob, you totally had something there, and I interrupted, so. No, I was I was just thinking about there's another angle of, there, there like, it is fun to put those pieces together, yeah. And I think there's a lot of games that basically the entire game is trying to basically put together a chronology, assembling the history yourself. Like uh, two games that occurred to me that sort of do this uh, to varying degrees of success, I would argue. Um, System Shock 2 is mm. basically entirely about assembling the order of events like in yeah. which things went wrong on this, but like every audio log has a time and date like stamped onto it. I love that. And <laughs> yeah, it is kind of, it is doing the like Bioshock radio play, but really it's also about like assembling in your head, this picture of like who these people are and their arc through this crisis toward their eventual end. That's basically like what you do in system shock two. That is the story of system shock two. It is, you know, who sold out, who died a hero, who reclaimed or tried to reclaim their soul, uh, and who became, who threw in with, uh, with the, with the annelids. Um, yeah. I think another game that does this, and I don't like this game as much, I think it's this, because of this very reason, everybody's gone to the rapture, mm. is another game that's literally just like, okay, we took a pretty straightforward story. We shuffled the deck of cards and we scatter them around this village. <laughs> now go explore and be fascinated. And I'm not sure once you put the pieces together, even as you're doing it, it starts to feel a little bit contrived, I think, because I don't, I never found the story of the characters all that interesting. And so it was like, it was like kind of a disappointing treasure hunt for me like a very slow disappointing treasure hunt where it's like we tied your <laughs> shoelaces together now go assemble a picture Crawl. of what happened here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and like 
I'm sorry, like, it's a gorgeous game, and it's an amazing soundtrack, and there's a lot I like. I was talking with Cam about this a couple weeks ago. It's a game we both, like, I think didn't like at the time, but weirdly also left a huge impression. So maybe secretly I love, you know, maybe I doth protest too much when it comes to everybody's gone to the rapture. <laughs> but nevertheless, like, I think one of my frustrations was anytime you're doing that sort of mystery box approach to things where it's like, hmm, I'm holding information back, there's little gaps here. The implication is the answer is going to be interesting, right? Like, yeah. like there's going to be an actual mystery here to resolve, right? And I think what yeah. comes out in Everybody's Gone to the Rapture is a pretty straightforward, like, chronology of events and, like, relationship mm-hmm. status changes. Um, you know, Father Jeremy found faith. Uh, it's, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if he really did. That's, but point, point is, um, I think so. I think that can be double edged because I think it can be really interesting to take a story and then remove parts and reshuffle them and tell a little bit, of, little bit out of order because then it becomes a puzzle that's satisfying for the player to get into. But, but it, it also, has to be satisfying. Yeah, but it, it also shows you how that person traversed through the space. Like the fact that they're scattered has a significance. It's not just like oh, we're going to break up the jigsaw puzzle and throw the pieces everywhere and go find them. It's like, no, this person literally, at least in System Shock and System Shock 2, these people were literally moving throughout these spaces to try and survive and to try and like their their story arcs are are uh, specific to the spaces that they move through. Um, and it's funny because... Uh, at least in Bioshock, correct me if I'm wrong, it's been a gajillion years since I've played it, each audio log, each character only has, like, one audio log found where their body is, right? Or it's, it's like... Yeah. It's pretty limited in that it's, sense, it's, yeah. So yeah. what's so fascinating about System Shock 2, and obviously, like, System Shock 2 did it first. Um, <laughs> oh, it, I mean, it did, yeah. Yeah, it did. Um <laughs> They, it's one character over like a long period of time. It's conversations between characters. Um, so you're really getting to know, and these, and these are, you know, space stations or they're, 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 they're small and contained and everybody probably, like it was pretty easy to know everyone or at least have an idea of everyone. So it makes sense that you're getting to know these characters like super intimately, um, even though you're, you know, this outsider being sent there to, figure out what the hell is going on and hopefully not get killed in the process. Um, but yeah, I loved those audio logs in, in System Shock 2 and in System Shock, the original. I think Bi- um, Bioshock is doing something different, I, I think. Like, yeah. it's interesting. It's using the same motif, but I, I think it is, like... I think But system- they're more like death log. I don't know. A little- Go ahead, sorry. It depends. No. It depends. It's, in some cases, absolutely. I, I just replayed it, like, a few months ago, so I'm I'm fresh on the Bioshock. But, yeah, sorry, Rob, go ahead. No, but, I mean, like, this is just, like, you can correct me, but, like, I feel like, so, System Shock 2 is, very, like, very chronological, you know, detailed, like, sequences of events that play out around each character. God, I love that point about, like, the element of in the system shot games, like, oh, this person stood right here where I'm standing and oh, like yeah, it's was like so trying to unsettling. do this. Yeah. Bioshock is interesting because I think it is really trying to do like Bioshock is much more interested in character and motivation, 
I think, than System Shock is. System Shock is interested in that stuff. They're both there's a lot of similarities. Uh, their structures like directly mirror each other in System Shock Two and Bioshock. But uh, mm-hmm. I think Bioshock is a little more interested in unpacking the different motivations and inner monologue of the individual characters. And that is what the audio logs are there to do. Like I think Bioshock, you probably can get a pretty detailed chronology if you really like fixate on it, but doesn't invite it. Broadly what Bioshock seems to do, at least to me is like there's a before, which is like before, like basically that new year's party, like everything from the founding of rapture up to new year's. What is it? 59, 60. Mm hmm. Uh, 59, I think. 59. Uh, where it all goes to shit. And then there's during, where, like, things are rapidly entering the spiral of, like, fascism and street warfare and, uh, you know, executions in the streets. And then it cuts off and there's after. And you are after. Like, the, the, the during ends with the creation of your character and you being sent on your mission. And you're, you represent after. But... The specific like chronology of how it all works out, Bioshock isn't so interested in that. It's mm-hmm. more just like what led people to what did people bring with them into this world and what led them to make the choices they made when we moved into the mid crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. And it's also uh, Bioshock being obviously a later game. Uh, and taking so much from System Shock 2 that it like it, it basically owes its entire existence to System Shock 2, to your point, Natalie, absolutely. Uh, but it's also very interested in, uh, and not subtly, in any way subtly, but it's also very interested in doing a lot of that world building with art assets and lighting and, and that sort of thing, as much as those sort of the radio play aspect of it. You know, the lighting and Fort Frolic. The way it like guides your eye towards certain things, the way that it uses like literal casino design and and sort of the design of other places and other types of of gaming and making you spend money and how much that says about things like capitalism and how much this is a super libertarian hellscape capitalist society, like things like that. Uh, again, not subtle. It's not a subtle game. There's no subtlety in Bioshock <laughs> at all, but it's doing it effectively, I think. And I, I am always probably going to be one of those people who's like. Actually, Bioshock was pretty good. Not subtle, <laughs> but pretty good. <laughs> yeah. And, and the think- second game, too. The second yeah. game is kind of great as well. Um, and does those lore bits uh, quite well. Now now that we're talking about Bioshock, I de- you, know, you know I have to shout out uh, my best friend, Prey, a.k.a. Psychoshock, according lo- to uh, Joseph Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> and just how well... Um, okay, it's in the same tradition. Absolutely. But just how well things like audio logs and emails and other sort of little details in the world tell you so much about that world. I'm going to specifically shout out the Starbender Chronicles, the like cheesy ass sci-fi books that are sort of all over the world. Mm, uh, I love those. (laughs) I made sure to, you know, I obviously found everything eventually. Uh, And there were more in Moon Crash, which made me very excited. There were more Starbender books. Yeah. Oh God! You I gotta, gotta do it. I gotta do oh, it. I definitely found good. all the books too, though. That it was like extremely my shit. <laughs> yeah, that's like a piece of fiction where, of course, you could completely play this game and not care about any of that stuff, and still really enjoy the game and enjoy the fiction at least on some level. But that added so much. It just added so much about you know various characters and their dorky uh, habits and things. The D and D campaign. Oh, wonderful. I love it. Yeah, it just adds so much to the character in the world. It just tells you so much about these people and it makes them feel like people who lived instead of 
in the Bioshock tradition, this really grand, it's kind of broad, almost like screaming from the rafters Broadway uh, interpretation of, of like characters who lived in a world uh, versus Prey, which I'm not going to call it subtle, but more subtle than that in terms of its uh, characterizations. For sure. Yeah, I'll say that like, at least in System Shock 2, the audio logs all were relevant to what went wrong in the space station. Mm-hmm. And in here in Prey, there is more, I mean, you get characterization through, through you know, the panic, through the problem solving, through all of that. But in Prey, there is like more sort of just building the character without the context or like without the, you know, what went wrong sort of scenario yeah. being at the at the core of what they're talking about every time um which is so awesome to just see like daily life um in like uh in the crew quarters just seeing sort of like daily existence what it was like to be you know just living on the space station um is so awesome uh and does so much for for each of those characters um and I don't know, it's it's strange that with with Bioshock, you have sort of not like daily life's ca- characterization as much. Or I guess, I don't know, it's been a while since I played Bioshock, so you guys can speak to it a little bit more. But you're never going to encounter that person. I don't know, <laughs> I guess this is a spoiler for Prey. Uh, so mute if you don't. But like the the idea that like, some of the backstory you get and then you like finally like see them and you're like, Oh shit, I know you. (laughs) Like I know about you. I can make informed decisions about my relationship with you and, uh, and not just informed decisions. Like this is the right answer, but informed decisions is like, this is my interpretation of who you are. Um, and I'm going to go off of that, which is just really, really cool. Yeah, absolutely. I think an interesting. I think the the, the um, <clears throat> sort of those narrative those narrative breadcrumbs that are scattered around prey do have to carry a little bit of extra weight because I don't think prey leaves into environmental storytelling through environmental design as much as say the Dishonored games do um, because like it's it's interesting like like and it's because they're two very different settings like prey is a bland corporate space station that was sort of like the the one bit of like environmental uh detailing there that tells you the history of the place is probably the fact that there's like clearly the heart of an old uh soviet space station in the middle of the uh of of the space station but beyond that the rest of it's going to be like you know standard office cubes uh conference rooms research labs what you don't get is I think what Arcane leaned a lot on with Dishonored, which is the idea that everything in the Dishonored level is trying to hint at the history and context of the space. Mm. Um, you know, when you go into, like, Dishonored early on introduces you to, like, what the more inhabited, like, what the slums, the inhabited slums of the city look like and what's happening there and sort of the ways that, like, the plague houses are sort of interwoven with, like, just normal life as people try to carry on. And then you see, like, with, um, what is it, Lady Boyle's Last Party, uh, how, 
like the well-to-do live in these like super fortified uh, gated communities and it's all uh, you know mask of the red death shit in there it's it's all just like lavish uh, you know fiend to sequel uh, you know partying going on there and then you go to like the place like the flooded district and it's a sign of like what the city even was before everything went to hell and it's sort of a trapped in amber version of like what the city looked like before political upheaval, before like the decline of the empire really started. But of course it's abandoned now and it's all falling into ruin. And there's a story being told even there. And I think this is another thing that probably, I think that's unusual. And maybe it's something you can only do in a game like Dishonored, uh, where you can have these really discrete locations that exist apart from each other and like can be thematically very, very different as opposed to pray self-contained. Everything is sort of got to exist on a continuum. So do a lot of open world games, open world games, I think struggle to portray like transition in a weird, I don't know you, cause they don't draw attention to it. You don't open world games. You go to a place and it has a different vibe, but there's no sense of like, these two things were once very similar that diverged. Why? Like Dishonored is entirely about that. How does a how does a city, how does a country fall apart? That is that is part of what Dishonored is trying to answer. And so it's concerned with those details. I think a lot of games don't really leverage that that aspect of like environmental storytelling. It, it goes to the um Oh, we'll show the parents on the bed, uh, you know, with their with their child's toy, and like that's our envi- environmental storytelling. I don't think you see as much the like the environment itself is telling a story. The yeah. architecture itself, the color design, the you know those yeah. kinds of notes. Yeah, I, I would agree. Go ahead. I was only going to say I wish so much that I liked the way that moving through that game feels because I'm so <laughs> interested in the world of Dishonored and Dishonored 2, I, like, really want to experience that world, but I just cannot jive with the movement and gameplay. I don't know what it is. It's, like, it's my biggest sadness, Some I think. Some joyous gamer this is. <laughs> <laughs> the sadness gamer has logged on. Oh, no! Death of the Outsider, I would I would recommend that to, to give that a shot because uh, it's good and a little different. It's a little different. There's some tweaks. Some mm-hmm. good tweaks there. Uh, one thing that uh, came to mind, Rob, when you were talking about the sort of Dishonored versus Prey thing uh, is a challenge that I know um, folks have found some interesting solutions to, but it, it strikes me as very much uh, a time and place kind of thing, such as Dishonored is set in the, oh God, 1800s. I know it's the, not Yeah, the fake Earth, 1800s, yeah. It's like an 1800s-ish, you know, uh, steampunk-ish, not all the way steampunk, but a little Pretty bit. Steampunk. Uh An era where people live analog <laughs> lives, right? All the objects in their world and the architecture in their world is very uh, substantive, right? Versus something like a, a more digital life in Prey in a, in a future, you know, where people read books on, you know, it's, it's in their little, all the objects, all books, all that content is on a, a little screen, just sort of like the way we live our lives, right? And and sort of like, okay, people live digital lives in this much more fake-looking environment, in this very bland kind of looking environment. And that, of course, was one of the reasons why they chose the 90s for Gone Home, because that was a time where people live very analog lives and have all these objects that tell stories about people. Whereas, 
you know, unless you design an interface for going into someone's computer or going into their device or whatever it is, it will appear colorless. It will appear anonymous. It'll appear in some ways just an object versus, oh, an object that has, you know, particular meaning no matter what, just looking at it, that sort of thing, which is its own weird and interesting design challenge, I suppose. But uh, yeah, always got to talk about prey. How can I not? <laughs> uh Unless anybody has any other thoughts on lore, I thought maybe we'd go to the take a quick break and go to the question bucket. Any other lore thoughts? Uh, I was going to say a thing about Bloodborne and Dark Souls uh, and totally speak for Patrick and Austin, but uh, the, the brief <laughs> yeah. comment I will make is that those games are very interesting to me for the reasons that, uh, you know, Patrick is not necessarily as interested in lore at all, and he can enjoy those games. And Austin, on the other hand, Loves the lore, loves the fact that, you know, the world building is in objects and things that you could you could ignore, but it's there and it's all sort of the fabric of the game and it it's there for you too, uh, which seems like an interesting and kind of a cool approach. Uh, but I'm not going to speak for them. I'm just going to say the, that one argument that they both have every time we talk about <laughs> <laughs> these things, just to represent that they have opinions too, even if they're not here today. Aww. <laughs> Miss yeah. you. We love them. Uh, all right, we'll take a really quick break and then we'll take a, a, a brief dip, the briefest dip, into our question bucket. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. All right, I have I have one question, and it's more of a comment, and it's lore related. So, hear me out. Is anybody here playing Spider Man? Just uh, to be clear, yeah, Rob's playing Spider Man. That's right. I should have remembered that. You totally talked about Spider Man the other day. I'm sorry. Gotta fix the security cameras of New York. It's my Ugh. quest. It's my mission. Ugh. Just gotta <laughs> like. Don't do uh, it. There's Rob. a point where he's like, "Wow, with these new Oscorp camera sensors, we can we're getting pings off of every RFID chip for miles." And oh, I was like, "Good lord, <laughs> bad, bad spider cop, bad." <laughs> oh. oh, okay. We got a, a a comment here from Alex in Rhode Island. Shout out to Little Rhodey. Thank you, Alex in Rhode Island. Alex writes. It was mentioned early and often, once the embargo on Spider-Man, ahem, Marvel's Spider-Man, lifted, that J. Jonah Jameson was made essentially into an Alex Jones equivalent. One person on the internet said it, before you know it, everyone is saying it, and everyone is very wrong about that. You guys are very outspoken about your politics and fairly well informed about current events, but more so about the cast of characters in our current political theater. I'm surprised that you guys didn't notice it. He wasn't modeled after Alex Jones. He was modeled after Bill O'Reilly. He's always talking about how he's a journalist, like like it somehow makes him right, and yelling at his intern about how he's tough but fair. And his show is called Just the Facts, whereas O'Reilly is all about how he covered four wars with a pen from hundreds of miles away, boasted about being fair and balanced, and the most well-known part of his show is the no-spin zone. 
Jameson kisses Norman Osborne's ass and lobs him softball after softball in one bit of the show, much like O'Reilly would with any conservative who came on his show. And both call those people, uh, and both call the people who disagree with them, quote, idiot or quote, stupid, and then would cut their mic. Somewhere in these bits, I'm expecting there to be a riff on O'Reilly's Papa Bear nickname, Alex in Rhode Island. How could we get it wrong? I don't know. I, I love the comment bucket. <laughs> <laughs> Send your comments, too. <laughs> Send Thank, your comments. Thanks, Alex. Do you have a response? Natalie Watson, yeah. 2018. <laughs> <laughs> Cool um, story. No, I, no, this is actually good. It is good. It's a good comment. Like I, because actually, I think there's a good point here, which is that like O'Reilly somehow remained somehow vaguely respectable long after he should have, even though like yeah. his act. I think one like there's a bit of the amnesia that I think afflicts all of us right now, where especially now where like a year seems like 10 years. Um, O'Reilly's been off the air for a little, a little bit. Uh, and now he's, I don't know, he's, he's podcasting or something, right? Um, I don't know. He's, he's he's paying off (laughs) harassment suits and, uh, he's he's podcasting. Um, but fuck, it's easy to forget him. At this point, like now, well, Alex when you Jones have Alex the, Jones, yeah, when you have him just so fucking loud in your yeah. face every single fucking morning when you log on Twitter, like how <laughs> how yeah. can you have the brain, the bandwidth in your brain to remember all the shit lords of the, <laughs> you know, I don't know, but yeah, continue, Rob. Sorry, no, but I, I think it's it's a fair point where, like. An Alex Jones version of J. Jonah Jameson is probably a completely different character. Like, J. Jonah Jameson, like, was always an asshole, but, like, he was a tough newspaper editor and kind of a shitty, abusive boss, but, like, ah, damn it, you you could kind of, you kind of love the bastard. Uh, And for him to become an Alex Jones character is is a bit of a reach, but it's very easy for him to, like, curdle into a full Bill O'Reilly character uh, using the credibility accrued from his journalistic history and perch to launder um like toxic ideology and sort of get away with it for for a long Mm. time i guess it it is it is a useful distinction um but it is also i think we're already in the process of getting who the fuck bill o'reilly is in 10 years (laughs) like he's gonna be a fucking footnote like people don't talk about alex jones because like he's the logical endpoint um and no one's gonna remember fucking Bill O'Reilly or Judge Maria or whatever the f- whatever fuck her name is. <laughs> like no one's gonna give a shit. So does uh J. Jonah Jameson not have the bugle in this game, or does he still have that? No, he's out. Uh, he's out. Yeah, he's okay. not at the bugle anymore. So that's even the more direct like at the bugle. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. They, I mean, yeah, that makes that. Yeah. Yeah, makes a lot of sense, and it is like. Weirdly, I thought of because um, I just I just listened to this. The uh, citations needed. I know we talk about them all the time. I'm sorry, but they they had, they did a brief episode on John McCain and his legacy, uh, and and just how fondly remembered, you know, McCain was for for being, uh, you know, what what a guy on human rights. But of, of course, you know, the truth being awful on, on human rights. You can't be great on human rights if you're advocating bombing people, um, and just sort of like, well, because he wasn't as bad as the current guy. 
kind of thing or he he didn't seem as bad in some ways as as a you know as another horrible yeah it's like grandpa bush politician. Yeah, exactly <laughs> the very, fuck very similar, is happening similar like almost whitewashing of like oh the guy who was 99 percent as bad in, in many ways I, I know i'm oversimplifying this but oh this person who was who was bad but like maybe not quite as bad oh this guy's worse so therefore let's uh let's sort of like throw some love on the guy who wasn't quite as bad in every single way which is horrifying well, and toxic and not awesome yeah it's so. this infuriating like fucking obama acting like he's pals with boehner like yeah okay right. i guess he is Come better on. than what you got in the end but like he's he was a brick on the road to hell like yeah it's deeply frustrating uh political reporters yeah. are just the absolute fucking worst and the <laughs> the faux not helping the, us out right the now faux yeah. objectivity i think is that objectivity but the um it is interesting to me the combination of um, act like you've been here before, no cheering in the uh, press box, like pretensions of that class with the clear rush they get off of being in the proximity of people like John McCain. Like mm-hmm. the fact that clearly it made a huge impression on them. That he hung out with them and knew their fucking names and like yeah. bar- like threw a party and invited them, like mm. that mattered a tremendous amount to them. Like what a decent fucking guy. Like couldn't um, be anything but yeah. decent if he invited media types over just to just to hang out. What could possibly be the ulterior motive there? It's like the Washington <laughs> press corps is the people who get like the fucking Christmas turkey from the mob boss. And are like, awesome. <laughs> Hell yeah. I can. They're doing a lot for the yeah. city. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. But I do. Yep. Yeah. I think the distinction of uh, J. Jonah Jameson being O'Reilly and not Alex Jones, I think it is important um, because we can't forget about the shitlords of the past. Um, because they're still here you know they're still operating in these spaces Uh, you know uh, John McCain up until yeah John McCain up until his death was you know had not resigned and was still in in office Uh, and uh, President Bush is you know still like in political circles obviously and bill o'reilly has a fucking podcast you know like these they they don't just disappear like they still have um power they still have political power they still have influence they still have uh uh agency to do things that they want to do and or say things that they want to say and and um platform the topics and uh ideologies that they think are important so uh it is you know it's it's kind of interesting that you know to see jay jonah jameson and think like oh be reminded of someone in the past rather than like placing someone of now in there be reminded of someone in the that was maybe more at the forefront of the past uh and be like oh yeah he still sucks um so yeah yeah i think there's usefulness in showing how a character like that does transform over time in context right like yeah this mm-hmm, is yeah. Uh, totally tracks like this is what jameson would turn into 
like right. an angry, bitter asshole uh, on the airwaves. But and I, I think you're like these people don't go away, and they will always be trading on their vestigial credibility to try to disarm people from recognizing what they are actually doing, even as they do it right in front of you. Like this flurry yeah. of what happened to Tucker Carlson pieces, some of which have been good, but like. A little late to be asking, right? Like, here, here's the alternate. Nothing happened to Tucker Carlson. Like, Tucker Carlson just found it ever more profitable to, like, reveal himself. But, like, this idea that, oh, you know, he used to, he used to work under respectable mastheads. So, ergo, you know, we couldn't have gotten it wrong. Something must have changed. What <laughs> if it didn't? And what if those mastheads were never that respectable? Just a thought. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that's a very good place to uh, to end this today. What if those mastheads weren't respectable? This has been Waypoint Radio, of course. And if you have a question or a comment, like Alex's <laughs> very good and personal comment here, <laughs> yes. uh, you can send questions uh, to gaming at vice.com with the subject question. Shout outs, as always, to Bowen uh, for letting us use his track, Miss You, off the EP Pale Machine. We're on Twitter at Waypoint. We're on Facebook at Waypoint Vice. We're on YouTube at Waypoint Vice. Of course, we're on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Waypoint. And you can read everything that we write on waypoint.vice.com. Let's go around the room and see where we can uh, find people online. Natalie, where can people find you? At Natalie Watson on the Twitters. Awesome. Kato, where can we find you? At A underscore Kato underscore appears. Rob, how about you? At Rob Zachney on Twitter.com. Oh, very nice radio voice there. <laughs> very, very nice. I like that. Uh, I'm at Danielle R.I. if you care to follow me as well. Uh, I wish you all a, a good weekend. And as always, I say be good and be good at it. Peace. <laughs> That was me being Rob. You know, if you think about it, my last thought just by Robert Browning is an epic lore dump. <laughs> God <laughs> damn it. Good. So good. God. Uh, Rob, how do you do that every time? You just always have a thing. Maybe you Rob's got Rob's got the final final word. He's the final got, word. Rob. Rob. That's, that's the last New podcast, word. Rob's Rob's last word. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's so good. We forgot to inform you the final word has become racist. What happened to Rob Zappi? No! No! Record time! Record time for the milkshake duck on that one. What's wrong with having a monoculture? I don't understand. Oh! No, Rob, come back! No! No! When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.